So teaching at Yale was amazing. But one thing I saw about the students is that the students were so skilled and accomplished at what they had focused on that sometimes it was really hard for them to take risks, right? It was hard for them not to be good at something. It was hard for them to appear not to be good at something. They just had so much pressure to be perfect. And somehow along the way, I learned pretty, pretty quickly that if I tried to play the game of being perfect, I wasn't going to win that game. Um, you know, everyone has different gifts, but I'm pretty sure my gifts or my reason I'm on the earth is not to excel at being perfect. And so if you can't win the game, you change the game, right? And so once I realized that I could let the perfectionism go um, and I could try new things, all of a sudden, all these things I never dreamed that I could do I could do, right? Because I just got over the fear. And I think this came again from the formative experience of having as a young woman to walk into prisons where at any time, you know, there'd be 400 men who were facing deportation. Many of them lived their whole lives in the United States. They were scared. They did not want to be deported. They had no idea what was happening. They were very sad to be in prison. None of them had committed or all, very few of them had committed any crimes. They were just in prison because of immigration violations. They didn't have any legal help. There was not, you know, professional, a whole cadre of professional, awesome immigration lawyers just waiting to represent them free of charge. No, those people weren't there. It was my friend and it was me. And my Spanish was not perfect. I was not an awesome lawyer. I was early 30s. But you know what? I was their lawyer. I was the best that they had. And so I had to walk in there and say, okay, to a crowd of people um, who are going to get deported, this is how we're going to try to get you not to be deported. Let me help you as much as I can. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Level Up Your Leadership. I'm your host, Lisa Kristen. In today's episode, I interview Alexandra Dufresne, an American lawyer specializing in refugee, immigration, and child law and policy. She taught seminars in law and policy at Yale College for a decade and represented refugees and abused and neglected children across the United States. She's also worked on public policy at the state level in Connecticut as a policy fellow and attorney at various nonprofits, including the Center for Children's Advocacy. She moved to Zurich with her family in 2016, where she does refugee policy and teaches American law at universities in Switzerland. Honestly, if I could give an award for Humanitarian of the Year, it would go to Alexandra. She's so amazing. And Alexandra's advice for how you can best level up your leadership? Do the hardest thing. Don't try to be perfect at it. Don't worry about the risk of failing or looking stupid. The hardest thing is what's going to move you leaps and bounds ahead in your career. And guess what? Alexandra admits, you're probably going to make mistakes. You're probably not going to be perfect like that. Like I wasn't perfect saying that line. You're not going to be perfect the first time that you try something and it might be awkward. But the second time and the third time, it will get easier. And always seeking to be outside of your comfort zone and doing the hardest thing is what's going to grow you the most. I also want to mention that in this episode, we talk a lot about U.S. politics, but for those of you who live outside of the U.S., the lessons here apply far beyond the specific example that we're talking about. So if you don't know much about U.S. politics, don't worry. There's still some good nuggets in there for you. My favorite part of the episode, when she told me it was absolutely acceptable that I don't always have to look perfect. I love that. I love that permission. I think the inner perfectionist inside of me was letting out a huge sigh of relief. So I hope you enjoy this episode with Alexandra Dufresne.
Alexandra, welcome on the show. I'm so glad to have you here on one of my very first episodes of Level Up Your Leadership. So you and I know each other a bit from a political activist group that we belong to together here in Zurich. It's called Action Together. We'll talk about it, you know, later in the episode. But one of the things that I want to mention is through our working together, I've gotten to see you in action. <laughs> I've gotten to see your leadership styles and you are truly inspiring. And that's why when I've seen you giving speeches, rallying people up, encouraging people, I knew there's something special about Alexandra's leadership style. I've got to get her on the show. <laughs> and what I noticed about you is you have this very particular way of inspiring people. You're quite encouraging. You're quite optimistic. You're absolutely enthusiastic, energetic, full of energy. And you're very encouraging. And at the same time, you still really hold the bar high. You still get people to rise up to the challenge. It's not just a nice pat on the back, thanks for showing up, but it's a thanks for showing up, glad we're in this together, and let's get some really awesome things done. So I'm really glad to have you on the show and have you share your leadership experiences with us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here, Lisa. Great. And I want to start from the beginning. I want to know all about where you came from because I'm curious. You know, you graduated with a bachelor's degree in history from Yale University, which I'm sure most people are familiar with how prestigious it is as an Ivy League school, top in the world. And I'm curious, how did you then decide, okay, I have a history degree. Now I want to go to law school. I grew up in Atlanta in the South um, in a fairly conservative family. And before I went to Yale, um, everything I had focused on was music and literature and art. But at Yale, I had the opportunity to meet, of course, students from all over the world, from all over the U.S., who were interested in a bunch of different things that, frankly, I didn't know much about. And so I became active in some of the human rights groups and some of the human rights journals. And then I began to take classes uh, with the people that I met um, and became more and more interested over time in both uh, Latin America and in human rights. And so by the time that I was going to graduate, I was pretty sure that I wanted to do something um, in the human rights field. And there's many, many different ways you can do that. But for me, the most natural fit was through law school. Mm-hmm. Now that makes sense. And, you know, you studied abroad and worked in Mexico during your undergraduate time as well. How did that shape your career path attending law school, the human rights aspect? So I think my time in Mexico was probably the most formative time in my life. Um, you know what it's like when you're in your uh, early 20s. Those experiences have a disproportionate impact on uh, your direction yeah. um, and your beliefs for the rest of the, um, your life. Just because you're so open at that time, everything's new, you're not defensive, uh, you're really eager to take everything on and to see everything with new eyes, you know, bright eyes and bushy tails, which is <laughs> exactly why I love teaching, by the way, that age group so much. There's nothing better than teaching someone, you know, between the ages of 18, say, and 24. It's just a, a magic, magic age. Um, and so I went to Mexico when I was about 20. It happened by accident. I just saw a flyer at school and it was actually a crazy cool experience. Um, I was with a bunch of Mexican university students my age from Mexico City who went into indigenous villages in the countryside and lived with indigenous people for a month. Um, and the idea was, of course, that we would provide community service, that we would teach the people how to build an oven and make bread and um, how to disinfect their water. But of course, of course, it was that the people there were teaching us how to survive. You know, we were um, 20 and idealistic and well-educated and, you know, completely clueless. 
And of course, the indigenous people who have lived that way for centuries were keeping us alive. But it was a great, <laughs> it was a great uh, cultural experience. And I learned so much. And I think what really, really shocked me, and this is an experience that a lot of Americans have uh, when they go abroad, is, you know, I'd grown up in an extremely patriotic family. And I'd grown up believing in American exceptionalism and that we were, um, you know, God's gift, quite literally, not metaphorically, uh, to the world and that um, there was no better place than America. And it was quite something to go to Mexico where, at least with the people that I was with, uh, they were very warm and loving towards individual Americans, but they had absolutely no patience and no use for our government. And that was the first mm -hmm. time that I learned about the history of uh, what people call U.S. imperialism, the history in Latin America, exploitation of people in Mexico. Um, and that was really, really eye-opening for me. It's sort of embarrassing to me now that I hadn't realized those things. I hadn't read up on the history of colonialism in Latin America. Um, I was really, really naive. Um, and it was such a form of experience to go there. And then also when we were um, with the indigenous people, um, you know, what we would do is we would teach the children and chat and have fun. And a lot of the people had never seen a so-called American before. They didn't know where America was. I mean, I might as well have been an alien. I spoke Spanish with a, you know, terrible American accent. The uh, indigenous people have their own language and they speak Spanish as a second language. So we're both speaking our second language. Um, and they weren't quite sure what to make of me. And it was a really great experience to be basically like an alien among other people. <laughs> and it does sound really formative to the work that, you know, you do now. And I don't want to get too far ahead, uh, reveal too much in the beginning. But the fact that you were open and listening to what's going on and hearing these perspectives and, and experiencing, wow, how have I never known this other world existed? I mean, that's a really critical time. Yes, that's it. Exactly. <laughs> And so these experiences impacted your idea on wanting to affect change, human rights, and going to law school. And after you graduated from law school, you worked for some prestigious law firms and noticed that maybe some of those jobs weren't the right cultural fit for you. Why did you think that? What did you notice? Yeah, that? that's right. I mean, on the one hand, it was wonderful to work for the major law firms because uh, what's great about the law firms is that everything that they do, because so much money, frankly, is riding on their work, everything they do is perfect. And so, for example, the legal secretaries did everything perfectly. Um, the associates, we were expected uh, to get at every comma in the right spot. We were expected to work around the clock. We were expected to make sure that any work we turned in was of the highest quality and that we could do it very quickly. And so it was a very exciting environment in that way. And it's fun to work with people who uh, really excel at their jobs. So that was the positive thing. The negative thing, or not negative, it just is where I realized that I wasn't a particularly good fit is that just at the end of the day, it didn't matter to me whether we won our cases or not. I mean, I wanted to do a good job to please the people who uh, I was working for because they were paying me and that was my job, but not because um, it mattered to me which way the case went. Uh, usually the outcomes were neutral. Um, I found the litigation process to be very costly and wasteful just from an economic perspective. Um, and it was sort of sad to see so much intelligence and hard work of so many people devoted to, um, at the end, projects that did not either help the economy or make the world a better place at all. Um, and so pretty quickly on, I knew that I wanted to turn to public interest work. And what kind of cases were you working on? Um, so I was in the litigation departments of major firms. And so um, and I was a general litigator, so I would do whatever people gave me. I did a lot of antitrust work, a lot of environmental work, big corporations suing one another, that kind of stuff. Got it. So that was also formative in helping you figure out, you saw, you know, in Mexico and in undergrad, you said, okay, I, I sort of am learning what I do want. And then going to work in the law firms, you're saying, okay, I, I see what I maybe don't want. <laughs> 
Yes, that's right. And I think, I mean, I, by, when I went into the law firms, I already knew that I was going to uh, want to do public interest work one day. But I think what I really learned about the law firms is how to be a pro. I mean, that's what I really admire. And the things that they do, they do very, very well in that level of professionalism and demanding the very best in that level of hard work. Um, I'm really grateful for the people that I worked for uh, because they really demanded the best. Um, and having worked in the private sector makes it a lot easier to work in the public sector because um, obviously the public sector relies on the private sector for funding and for fundraising. Um, and a lot of actually great pro bono work is done by the major law firms. So I've considered it always as a benefit and people seem to have seen it as a benefit that I understand a little bit at least what the private sphere is like. Excellent. And were there any other influences like books or role model that helped to guide you as you were discovering your career path? Yes. So in law school, um, I had the opportunity to represent um, a family uh, from Guatemala who had fled to the U.S. during the Civil War. Um, I can't get too far into the details, but we can say that the main person, uh, her close family member, was disappeared by the secret police. Um, and this is a woman who worked as a housekeeper. She had two young sons. At the time, she seemed so um, mature and incredible to me, so brave. Uh, looking back on it, probably at the time, I'm just realizing now as we speak, she was probably in her 30s, much younger than I am now when I represented her. And she was such an inspiration to me. And I was so lucky that I had the opportunity to represent her. Um, and we were successful in her case. And I think she really set the model of courage. I mean, I, I will never aspire to be as brave as she was. That that won't happen. But still to know that someone like that survived the very worst thing would, to happen to you, which is um, to have your, your loved one taken away from your eyes, you know, and, and killed and to have to go to another country um, and then to work as a housekeeper, you know, and her sons went on to be very successful. And the really amazing thing is that in her own way, she wasn't exceptional. I mean, she was one of thousands and thousands of Guatemalan women who were in that situation in America. And so she was a real inspiration to me. And I'm lucky that I had the opportunity to uh, represent her uh, very, very early in my career. Wow. That sounds really like the work that you were doing was really impactful in changing people's lives. And that seems to be clearly a thread in how you figured out what you want to do with your career and where you wanted to go and, and all the advocacy work. And at what point did you decide to balance your advocacy work and that sort of part of your career with an academic portion of your career? Yes. So um, after I left the law firm, I went to work at uh, Boston College Law School, where I helped run the clinic uh, for law students to, for them to learn how to represent immigrants and refugees who were detained. That means in the immigration prisons, uh, detained by the Department of Homeland Security. Because we were a law school, we had the good fortune of being able to take uh, just a few cases and really execute them well because it was supposed to be a learning experience for the students. But we would also go uh, to the prisons at any one time. There were between 1,000 and 1,400, uh, usually men detained in the area that we were. We would go to the prisons and give what are called Know Your Rights presentations, uh, where we would basically teach people how to represent themselves. Now, that's a very sad thing because the, the analogy we always used is it's like a doctor trying to teach people how to sew themselves up. You know, look, I can't, I can't treat you. I know that you're bleeding. I know that you have appendicitis. Um, okay, this is how you're going to make the cut. I mean, the, the idea in its way is absurd um, that people who are immigrants who may not have legal English, may not understand our legal system, are going to have to represent themselves in immigration court against uh, essentially the equivalent of a U.S. prosecutor who's a trained lawyer whose job it is to deport people. So part of the, the mission is intrinsically very sad, but because of the uh, lack of legal resources, it was that or nothing. And the people in the prison were very grateful for the help and very eager to learn um, how they could represent themselves. 
So uh, what I very quickly figured out, <laughs> anyone in that situation would figure out, is that um, the model of you trying to do everything yourself will never work. So we worked as hard as possible and uh, we were very successful in our cases and um, we were very proud of our work. But at the end of the day, um, what we were able to accomplish was a tiny, tiny, tiny drop in the bucket. And even if we had worked twice as hard, it still would have been a drop and a half in the bucket. <laughs> there was no way that me individually and just a few people could scale up our work to solve the problem. It was impossible. And so also that work, I should say, is great work if you are young and if you don't have a family and if you can give it everything because it's hard to be halfway in. You have to be all in or all out. So at that time in my life, it was great. It was a very heady time. I could work literally around the clock. I had no other obligations except to my husband. I didn't have anything else I had to do so I could go all out. Uh, but that's not something you can do later when you have a family. And it's hard to sustain for a career of 40 to 60 years. I definitely do know some people have been able to sustain that level of direct services work and I admire them so much, but it's pretty rare to be able to do that for your whole career. So faced with these resource constraints, Pretty quickly, I figured out that the best service that I could provide would be to continue to uh, learn to be a good lawyer and to learn advocacy skills, but then to seek out opportunities to teach them to more people so that we could create you know, a network or a group or a large number of people of students coming up to enter this field. And what I'm really excited to say, this is nothing to do with me. This is not because of my actions, but it used to be a time where immigration law was uh, considered a very uh, side field. It wasn't respected. It was like one step over ambulance chasers. It wasn't taught in the major law schools. It was not considered as a real subject. And now, which is good timing given everything that's happened in the US, uh, many, many new immigration advocacy legal organizations have been created and uh, students from the top law schools are going into the field. It's now taught in law school clinics. Um, there's beautiful textbooks. It's a very, very hot field and it's gained a lot of respect. So it was great that by the time I finally taught uh, students at Yale, there was a lot of interest and a lot of people, a lot of my students have actually gone into immigration refugee law as a career. Wow. So that has a big impact that the industry is changing, that people can really focus on this and that the top talent is going to go out there and help these refugees. And what role did empathy play in all of this? So I think that every student that I've ever taught has come to the class because of empathy, either because uh, they themselves were immigrants or refugees or because their parents were or because they had a formative experience early in their career where their best friend uh, was afraid of getting deported or that perhaps the parent of their best friend was getting deported. Um, I asked students to write essays because the class is selective to see who, who should get a spot. And every essay that they write talks about their academic career, but also gives the reason. And the reason is always a personal connection through empathy. I don't think you can practice human rights or civil rights law without uh, a lot of empathy. The downside is that you have to be very, very careful. So uh, people talk a lot about secondary trauma and burnout. And the problem is if you show too much empathy, um, you could hurt yourself and then you're not helpful to anyone. And it's also very important not to let the empathy cloud your judgment. Uh, something that's hard about immigration refugee law is that there are just a lot of really hard things in people's background and people who uh, are refugees and survive sometimes have parts of the background that are not uh, what you would want as maybe as their lawyer. There are some hard things and you have to be able to see things for what they are because uh, you're not doing anyone any favors if you're naive or if you're innocent or if you're just uh, too empathetic and you're not cold. It's sort of the job of the lawyer to, in some ways, to be cold and calculating and distant so that you can, uh, much like a doctor, I would imagine, so that you can serve your client the best. Yeah. 
Wow. Uh, really interesting because, you know, we do hear a lot about burnout, over empathy. And I also think this ties to even just for everyday people when we read the news and it's disaster after disaster and chaos and civil wars here. And, you know, we start to feel a little bit of a, of an empathetic burnout. And we'll talk about that a little bit later as we go into your advocacy. But I, I'm curious to know, as you started to hone your advocacy activist, tying it into your academic career, what new leadership skills did you start to develop? So I've learned so much, I would say, uh, in the last 10 to 15 years. And, you know, it's, it's commonly said, it's a cliche, but I think it's absolutely true. You only really learn things when you make mistakes. And so um, I can think very clearly, too clearly perhaps, <laughs> of all the mistakes I've made in the past and why I made them and how I would avoid making them again. There's so much to say. So you have to learn, I guess, how to bring out the best in people, but then also how to be demanding and clear with people uh, when you need them to perform. And I think that's the biggest challenge is how, how do you be encouraging while at the same time also being demanding and not settling for anything but the very best? Yeah. And you have an especially difficult job in advocacy because you're trying to get people to care. And especially with Action Together Zurich, uh, people are coming on a voluntary basis. They're coming in their free time. This isn't a job. You're not a boss. The motivation to come has to be something intrinsic. And so how do you talk to that? How do you get people when they're in this mindset of empathetic overload? How do you get them to refocus and to recare and to take actions? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's less challenging than it ordinarily would be because of what is happening in America right now. But nonetheless, I think it's still a change. And so one thing I think I learned pretty early on is you cannot force people to care. If they're not interested, there's really nothing you can do to change that. And that's that's fine. People have are entitled to focus on the things that are important to them. And there's plenty of people who do really care that um, you can focus on working with people who already come to the issues with a predisposition. What's really great about Action Together, and this is frankly my first time working with purely volunteers, is I think the fact that we are volunteers and that no one has to be there and no one's paid and we can all leave at any time uh, and we all have a million other things going on. I think that's actually the strongest part of the selling point, right? And I think that helps our argument is that we don't have to be there. And if we're not positive, encouraging and warm and loving towards each other, we're going to walk away. And I think, I think that helps in a way, in a, in a strange way, it's almost gives us more freedom, more freedom to be creative, more freedom to be funny, uh, to take risks. And it's the kind of work that absolutely only works with a bunch of people. There's no way you can do this kind of work just on your own, which is a great thing because I have some skills I'm really happy to share, but I have many, many weaknesses. And other people in the groups have different strengths than I have and the different weaknesses. So you put us all together and it's a really strangely and surprisingly good team. So you've brought up something really interesting. This is maybe a tangent, maybe not, but you're very accepting that you're really strong in some areas and not in others. And like you even mentioned in the law firm, everything had to be perfect. Every T crossed, I dotted, comma in the right place. And you're okay with saying, I'm not going to be perfect at everything. <laughs> oh my gosh. I am so okay with saying that. I'm so okay with saying that. And I think that comes from, frankly, going to a place like Yale when you're 18 
routine because it takes you about a day to figure out that you're no longer going to be the best at everything. Maybe half a day before you figure it out. <laughs> um, and then that's actually very, very freeing. It's a relief to me. It's a relief to me that most people are better than I am at different things. That takes a lot of pressure off, right? And that also helps me, I guess, focus or not be shy about or share and, you know, sort of give out the light of the things that I know or I've noticed that come more easily to me than to other people. And so, yeah, I find that very freeing. Also, I have to say the experience of coming to Switzerland, moving here when I'm 44. I mean, being an immigrant is an example, exhibit A, of not being good at stuff or being a new immigrant, rather. I mean, when I speak German, which I should do every single day, I sound like I'm three years old, maybe four years old on a really good day. (laughs) I mean, it's hard to be prideful and keep up your, you know, your ego when uh, you speak like a toddler. So I think it's it's good. And um, it's a joy, frankly, to work with people who are really great at things that I'm not. And we have briefly talked about how optimistic you are on a regular basis. You also bring humor in. I see it all the time, you know, and in the advocacy work that you plan, it's also got a humorous element. So for example, one that's coming up, you know, as, as Trump comes to Davos for the World Economic Forum, you're actually going out into the streets of Zurich and apologizing to the Swiss citizens. <laughs> so, you know, why bring humor into everything? Everything. Well, um, first of all, Lisa, I'm glad that you think that the idea is funny because we, <laughs> we think it's funny. And that was a motivation uh, that Trump will never apologize for his actions. So we will. And so we will go up to passerbys who are Swiss or wherever they are from the world and um, apologize on behalf of uh, Trump. So I think, um, well, first of all, I'm inspired by a lot of uh, small protests that have happened all over America and the world um, that are very funny and very humorous. And I love my favorite thing to watch on the internet when I'm wasting time are flash mobs. Uh, just something about the creativity and the, the idea of adults being completely silly in a public space uh, just really appeals know, to an aspect of my personality. And even though Action Together is growing very quickly, now we're actually quite large. When we started, we weren't. And the only way, frankly, to make a splash is to do something unusual, right? If you do the same work that everyone else does, you just can't get into the space because there's not enough brute force. Um, so the only way we could really get people's attention is to be a little bit unusual, a little quirky and funny. And sure enough, sometimes it works. It doesn't always work because um, senses of humor are very culturally defined. And they're also interpersonally defined. So some things that I some ideas I have that I think, frankly, are hilarious, uh, we run them by the board, and they just they fall flat And other ideas that other people have that they think are just awesome. I'm like, Oh, I'm sorry, can you explain to me why that's funny? Um, So it's, you know, it's it can be hit or miss, uh, but it makes the work a lot more fun. And I think it also helps take away some of the anger. I think it's really important for political change uh, that we all remember that we all are part of one country and that it is no not fair play to malign Trump uh, supporters. First of all, they're my family and lots of people I grew up with. Um, and lots of people in the group have people in their family who are Trump supporters. But also it's it can bring out an ugly or an angry or a cynical side of people that I, I have that part of my, my personality. I have an angry side. And I, I frankly don't like that side of me much. It doesn't make me proud. And, you know, I can get bitter and dark and sarcastic, just like everyone else. Um, and I, I don't like being with myself when I go into that space. Uh, so the humor brings out the better, my like better angels of my nature. And I think in a group, it also uh, brings out our best. Yeah. And it also sounds like it brings out more creativity, more openness, more connection within the group. How do you get inspired with creative ideas or how to stay creative and relevant? 
I don't know exactly, except I love um, chatting people up. And it's been great joys coming to a new country. Before we moved to Switzerland, I knew nothing about Switzerland. I knew not a word of German. It's all new. And so uh, one way to learn about my new country is to just to talk to people. So I think talking to Swiss people, to seeing what they think is funny, what they think about the United States, often they have similar views, but they come at it with a different perspective that I hadn't seen before. And almost everything that a, um, a Swiss person uh, here says to me ends up in an essay somewhere or ends up in the thread of an idea. So that's probably where the ideas come from. And, you know, and we talk about creativity and the way you guys work together with humor and lightness. I mentioned you're optimistic. Um, there's also something you wrote in an article uh, for the student newspaper and the Yale Daily News about what employers want to know. And you gave practical tips highlighting that employers are looking for interpersonal skills. And I also sort of see you said talking people up, getting perspectives is helping with creativity. And it's also helping with the job search and, and being effective on the job. And you, in this article, you specifically talked about a girl who had average grades, but she had phenomenal interpersonal skills and she ultimately got her dream job. Can you elaborate a little bit on that story and why you think these interpersonal skills can play such an important role? Um, so that's something that I think I had undervalued or not understood as much as a young woman. But now with the different experience representing people from different cultures in very, very difficult and stressful circumstances, and then uh, experience trying to uh, build something new, what you quickly, quickly see is that almost everyone is plenty smart and plenty gifted intellectually. The differences, I guess, in intellectual abilities between people don't matter in any real sense. I mean, every once in a while at Yale, I would see a student who was just so gifted that it was clear that they were going to go on and, I don't know, become the president or win a Nobel Prize or something. And those people were very special and it was an honor to get to teach them. Uh, but they're very rare. I think the rest of us are all basically the same. We have different gifts, different strengths and weaknesses, but we're all plenty smart to get things done. And so what's holding us back is not uh, intellectual capacity or education or anything like that, but rather just our ability to work with one another. Um, I don't think that I'm particularly skilled. I see a lot of people in the group and at work who I look at them and I see how they interact with other people. And I think, you know, I need to up my game. Like, look, look how she did that. Look how she handled that. Um, I have to say coming to Switzerland is a challenge because uh, the social norms are different. The culture is quite different and you have to learn to be flexible and learn how to be successful in, uh, frankly, someone else's culture. So, I mean, it's something I value very highly. Um, I really saw it with this student who I wrote about that she made connections with the people in her class and she brought out what she did that I really love. I think this is probably the highest compliment I can give to someone is when you see someone who brings out the best in other people. I think that's the person I aspire to be and that's who I try to teach my students to be. And that sounds like a great leadership tool overall. And no matter where you are, no matter what job you're in, no matter where you are in the hierarchy, that's something you can bring to your role every day that can help you to stand out. And it can make the differentiator when you're at a lower level, getting with your peers, working in teams, but then also as a leadership skill and differentiating yourself as a leader, being able to lead your team with those interpersonal skills. And, you know, I do corporate trainings on emotional intelligence, influencing communications. And it is true that so many people forget 
how important this is. They have their heads down, you know, there's, there's not often a performance goal or a bonus tied to your interpersonal skills. And so when you're, da- you know, your nose is down, you're looking at the numbers, you, you're overwhelmed at work and you're just trying to keep pace. Sometimes you lose some of those skills and, and losing out on some of those leadership moments to change people and affect people. So I'm really curious. For someone who doesn't have a natural interest or an understanding of law and government and taking action, how do they get involved? How do they get started? <laughs> oh, um, in political advocacy, you mean? Yeah. Um, great. Well, I have uh, written some articles for different newspapers about uh, first steps that you can take. And I think the key here is that little steps actually really matter. I think back to your earlier question about people being overwhelmed by looking at the newspapers and seeing all the suffering in the world and the, the wars and just, just how do you, what, how do you even begin? Something that helps me frame how to start is just to remember that I don't have to do everything, right? You know, there's a famous quote from uh, Judaism. I should have brought it. Uh, perhaps we can read into the record later. But I'm not free to uh, ignore the suffering and walk away from it. But it's not mine to solve, right? It's my job to take immediate small actions. So more concretely, what that means is there's a million things you can do. You can start by, for example, making sure that you pay for high quality media just by getting a newspaper subscription. You can join groups like Action Together or get on uh, listservs from uh, advocacy organizations and see what issues are before the Congress and uh, pick up the phone and call your member of Congress. Americans, uh, regardless of where they live, have the right to contact and to uh, lobby the people whose job it is, frankly, to represent them. And Congress people are always happy to hear uh, from constituents. They're happy to see that people care about the work and they want to know your perspective. So I think that's one of the most concrete things you can do. Um, you can talk to people about politics. You can sort of fight against the social norm that says that it's uncouth or rude or tacky or, or not cool to talk about politics. I think in a time like this, we have to build our bonds to one another and we have to put political engagement back on the table, make it socially acceptable. So you can speak with people. You can start to write letters to the editor, uh, respond to media things. You can write your own letters. Uh, you can register to vote and you can encourage the people that you know um, to register and vote. So I think there's a bunch of small actions you can take. And then what's pretty special about it is once you start taking small actions, you start to get your confidence up and you see uh, that, you know, the sky didn't fall. You called your congressperson and the conversation went great and everything's fine. And then you can take the next action. So I think the key for all this for people who are new is to just jump in and take any a action. It almost doesn't matter what it is. And then you can go from there. And I loved in your article, Make the Call, where you talked about some of these steps you could take that you said you taught yourself how to be political despite being really bad and confused about it. (laughs) (laughs) And that uh, relieves a bit of the pressure for other people, even if your call to the congressperson goes terribly. Even if it's a worst case scenario, that's okay. You've still taken an action. And part of building the confidence I, I've found in being politically active is, is not actually how it goes, but rather just having the courage to do it. That's right. That's and right. Once you realize, okay, even if it's painful to call the congressperson, at least you know how it's going to go. You know the kind of questions they're going to ask on their end, what information you have to give. And it feels a bit less scary because it's now familiar. That's exactly right. I could not agree more. And something that I I talk about with my students a lot, um, so I'm teaching uh, you know, college students who are going to go on to law school, is I keep trying to emphasize that, for example, we call it practicing law. 
the word is practice because we have to practice it to get good at it, just like you would practice tennis or the violin or anything else. And so it's the same with the political activism. You don't get good at it until uh, you practice it. And my first call to a congressperson, I think I garbled all my words. I was nervous. I didn't say what I went to. You know, at the end of the day, it didn't matter. They they <laughs> took a, my point. Um, and then the next time my call was great. So, you know, this is work that anyone can do. And I think it's really important that we all engage regardless of what our professions are. Yeah. And from my experience, you know, in my background, I interned on Capitol Hill. I worked for a congressperson uh, back when I was in my idealistic early 20s. <laughs> and I was the person answering those phone calls. And so I know nobody had to be scared of me. <laughs> I, I think people imagine that the congressperson sits there mm-hmm. and you're going to call the congressperson directly and talk to them. And that can feel intimidating. But in fact, they have a whole team who's working for them. And the way that they look at it is just a simple numbers game. And so they just want to know X number of people called for or against this bill. And so when people are nervous thinking they're going to have some great debate (laughs) with their congressperson, that's not quite the reality. And I think knowing and facing some things that you feel scared about or or getting yourself armed with the knowledge of how it's really going to go versus that scenario you make up in your head... (laughs) is really helpful. And this goes back to another article that you wrote called The Hardest Thing. And you encourage people in their careers and advocacy work that they just need to keep trying to get out of their comfort zone in order to grow their skills. This sounds a bit like what you did at the law firm. And and as you've gone through all of your work is you've done things that are hard. You moved to Switzerland. You speak like a toddler in German. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit more about how um, you've continued to apply this advice and how it's gotten you ahead in your career and in your life? Yes. Um, so I think this advice has served me well. And the, I can just tell you a little bit about the origins of it. So teaching at Yale was amazing. But one thing I saw about the students is that the students were so skilled and accomplished at what they had focused on that sometimes it was really hard for them to take risks, right? It was hard for them not to be good at something. It was hard for them to appear not to be good at something. They just had so much pressure intrinsically and extrinsically on them to be perfect. And somehow along the way, I learned pretty, pretty quickly that if I tried to play the game of being perfect, I wasn't going to win that game. Um, you know, everyone has different gifts. We've talked about that before. But I'm pretty sure my gifts or my reason I'm on the earth is not to excel at being perfect. And so if you can't win the game, you change the game, right? And so once I realized that I could let the perfectionism go um, and I could try new things, all of a sudden, all these things I never dreamed that I could do, I could do, right? Because I just got over the fear. And I think this came again from the formative experience of having as a young woman to walk into prisons where at any time, you know, there'd be 400 men who were facing deportation. Many of them lived their whole lives in the United States. They were scared. They did not want to be deported. They had no idea what was happening. They were very sad to be in prison. None of them had committed or very few of them had committed any crimes. They were just in prison because of immigration violations. They didn't have any legal help. There was not, you know, professional, a whole cadre of professional, awesome immigration lawyers just waiting to represent them free of charge. No, those people weren't there. It was my friend and it was me. And my Spanish was not perfect. I was not an awesome lawyer. I was early 30s. But you know what? I was their lawyer. I was the best that they had. And so I had to walk in there and say, okay, to a crowd of people um, who are going to get deported, this is how we're going to try to get you not to be deported. This is These are the steps. Let me help you as much as I can. And it's, there's something about being in prison is that 
people in prison are so grateful if you show up. I mean, I would have to tell people over and over again, I'm sorry, there is nothing I can do for you. You have no defense and you have no immigration law defense that will work. You will be deported. And I would think people would be angry at me, that they would cry, that they would be hostile. And, you know, to a person, they say, thank you so much for telling me that. I'm so glad that you came here and you explained that to me. She's like, I just gave you horrible news. Why are you kind to me? You're in prison. You should be angry and mean. And people aren't. They're grateful. And so I think once I saw that if I could be successful in that environment and I could help people in that environment and they would be grateful for it, you know, once you work in prison, you can do anything. Like, <laughs> you know, talking to strangers this weekend, um, excusing myself in German for our president, like walking up to strangers is scary. It's not something I would normally want to do, but it is not as scary as going to prison. Almost nothing is. Um, so it's once you do the hardest thing, it's very liberating because you know what? I can do this. I've got it. I can do it. And it sounds like what you took away from that as well is every time you've tested yourself, so I'm going to a prison, scariest thing I can imagine, and I made it. I survived. I could succeed there or even just show up and be there, whether you succeeded or not, is a success in and of itself. And every time that you're pushing yourself a little bit farther, you're in a you know foreign country, speaking a foreign language, uh, teaching lots of students, does every step make it easier to do the next step? I think so. I think so. And I think what's important to realize is it's not... It's not as if every environment that I walk into, I am successful. It's not like everywhere I go, people say, oh, and how successful you are. You are awesome. No, 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 no. <laughs> I mean, I get certainly my fair share of criticism and I fail. I make mistakes. I've made mistakes here in Switzerland. I'm, I'm not... Uh, the fact that I try these hard things and I survive doesn't mean that I did them perfectly or that everyone is always happy with me. Far from it. But I think what you said was right on the, uh, right on the nose. This idea that showing up is what you need to do. And even when you're not successful, even when you have failures, like, so what? So I had a failure. Like, I I'm sorry that I let you down. Let me try again. You know what I'm saying? Like, you just, the older I get, the more I realize that you, you just have to have the courage to fail and deal with it because usually your failure, your so-called failure is still way better than not having tried it, not having shown up. And, you know, if I, if I summarize what I'm hearing you say of throughout this whole conversation, I'm hearing focus on being proactive and make mistakes along the way. Part of it was accepting reality sort of as it is, and a lawyer might have to be a little bit cold and serious, but moving on anyway when you've made a mistake and always tapping into courage to keep doing the hardest thing. Is that your magic success formula? <laughs> it's, so, it's so sweet because I, I mean, I'm just laughing because um, it's so it's so funny to hear the word courage applied to me because I, of course, in my mind, I always think about all the other people I know who are totally my heroes and so courageous and so, you know, so tough and how I wish I could be like them. And I mean, let's, let's not fool ourselves when I get criticized or someone says your idea is not good or you're out of line, you didn't do this well. It's not that I say, oh, well, thank you for the feedback. It's awesome. I mean, I say thank you for the feedback and I go home and I cry. Like, <laughs> I mean, let's, let's be realistic. Like, you know, I'm just like everyone else. Like, I don't like negative feedback. I cry a lot when I let people down. It's hard. Um, I get depressed just like every other people. I think that the, the, the difference or something that I'm proud of is that I go cry and feel sorry for myself. And then like the next day, 
you know, it's like, I'm going to get up, I'm going to drink some coffee, and I'm going to go try this again. So I, I don't want to make it sound like, like, quote, courage is being completely fine with uh, getting criticism all the time. No, it hurts. But I think if anything, it also just makes me more empathetic. So the more sort of like the more criticism I get, the more careful I am to make sure that when I'm with other people and that they screw up, that I am generous about it and uh, sort of, again, bring out the best in them instead of being hard on them. I, I mean, I have to say, quite frankly, when I was a young woman, I know this about myself. I could be very, very hard on people. I was very demanding. I was very, very passionate about human rights. Um, and I was not a patient person. I'm still not a patient person. Um, but I could be hard on people who I thought weren't doing enough, especially superiors. I was never hard on people below me in the hierarchy, but it could be very hard on the people I worked for. You know, why aren't you doing more? The older I get, I think I'm, it's not that I'm less passionate or less intense or less uh, hardcore about making sure we all do our best, but I'm, I'm just older. I've made more mistakes. And so I'm, I'm just more generous and tolerant about, you know what? I could be working for someone who is awesome at certain things and frankly, not good at other things. And you know what? That's okay because I'm awesome in some things and I'm terrible at other things. And you know what? I'm still here. Um, I think I've learned over time to be a little bit more uh, generous, um, and that's helped me be more generous um, and kind to myself. And then sure enough, when you change your attitude that way, uh, you start to bring out the best in yourself and the best in others. Yeah, wow. So really, you know, of all that, what's really standing out at the end there is focusing on people's strengths. And even in just your relationships and with your superiors and with people below you or activists that you focus on, they have some strength, they bring some value here. I'm going to have compassion that they're not going to be perfect at everything, just like I'm not perfect at everything. And I, Lisa, am certainly not perfect at everything either. <laughs> um, and I, and I love that you mentioned that this can be freeing because this does free you up. You're not saying, Hey, everybody needs to be courageous and never get, have a setback, get down about criticism. And what you're saying and what I think is a, a more important form of courage is I'm going to get knocked down and I'm still going to stand up again. That's exactly right. And what drives you to stand back up again? Um, well, I think what drives me is all the other people, especially women who I've seen do that. I mean, uh, back to the client I was speaking to at the very beginning. I mean, she hit the very rock bottom and she got up because she had to, because she had kids. Um, I mean, I've been very lucky that I've had such a, a life of privilege that I've never had to. I've never been forced to. Uh, but I am so inspired by people who are in much, 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 much more difficult situations than I have ever been in and who show much, much more courage than I ever have or ever, ever will. So I'm really inspired by them. And then I think just the payoffs are great. I mean, I can still remember some of the cases that we won of people that we we were pretty sure we're going to get deported. They were sure they're going to be deported. And everyone I talked to was like, you are, there's no way you were winning that case. That is a losing case. Give up. And we won. And I have to say, there's nothing like winning a case. There's nothing like it. And I always talk to students about, you know, some of my happiest memories are the, the days that we, we stop people from being deported who under ordinary circumstances would have been deported. And I remember my students always say, isn't your wedding your happiest day? I'm like, well, well, yeah, I guess. <laughs> but no, you know, actually the happiest day is like the day that guy didn't get deported. And you know, like no matter what happens to me, no matter if I get sick, if I you know, leave this world, whatever, like you can't take away the fact of that day. Like I did that, you know, and sometimes I feel really down on myself down in Switzerland. Maybe I'm not as successful as I should be. Maybe I've made mistakes. I've disappointed someone. And, you know, I sometimes it's really helped just look back like, you know what? But I did that. And like, there's 
there, that's the best feeling in the world. So we're really looking forward to the event tomorrow in Zurich. Um, regardless, you know, even if it doesn't go perfect, even if it's snowing, even if people are embarrassed to, you know, walk up to strangers, even if it's, you know, two people show up, like still, like, you know, we did it, you know? So um, I think those moments, uh, it's important to remember them and to celebrate them and to like, uh, give yourself um, courage from those those happy moments. Yeah. So it sounds like when you're in that down position, just tapping back into highlights and, and moments where there was success or there was determination where you said it's worth it. So you zoom out of whatever's going on in this moment and you look at the bigger picture and you say, it's worth it. It's worth it to get back up. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And also I think being in a group uh, this might be self-evident, but being in a group where we can support each other and having friends to be supportive. I mean, I think that's also something that maybe as a young woman, I hadn't totally understood. But now I'm just so lucky that when something goes well, people are really positive and kind about it. And that also serves to remind me that when I see someone doing well, that I need to like remember to actually tell them that. Um, this came up in action together that I just happened to run across in a news article of a young woman who's Swiss. I don't know her. She saw that her town uh, was going to accept the fine from the Swiss government uh, for not taking refugees. And they were just happy to pay the fine rather than take a refugee family into their village. And she thought that was outrageous that her her idyllic community that she'd grown up and loved was was going to take this. And so she started a petition and called a vote and did all these you know, crazy, strong political things in her own town at the risk of alienating people, making people disappointed with her. And she was like 25. And she's, by all accounts, seems to be just a normal person, right? She's not famous. I just happened to randomly come across a, talk, a tiny news article about her. And it made me think, uh, I haven't done this yet, but like someone like that, like how much would it cost me to find her on Facebook and drop her a note and just say like, wow, that was cool, you know? Because everyone once in a while, someone will do that to me. And I mean, a kind word, that's like three more days of work for me. You know, like I mean, it's such a like a people pleaser that if someone says they're happy, I'm like, oh, okay, now I will work harder to please you more. I mean, and it, it's kind of embarrassing that I should care so much, but I think it's important that, you know, I don't think I'm unlike other people. People need to be praised. They need to be told when they're doing something wrong. They need to fight the narrative in their head that says you're, you know, you're stupid, you're not performing, you're not doing this. And so I really appreciate positive feedback. And it makes me more mindful that I need to, when I see something that someone's doing good, I don't need to just think it. I need to actually take the effort to write them or, or thank them. That's right. And the recognition, sometimes the external recognition, because as you mentioned, many of us have a narrative going in our head and it can sometimes tend to go towards the negative, what hasn't been done, what hasn't worked, what hasn't. And getting the feedback, getting genuine, authentic praise or recognition for the work that you're doing, like you said, it does make the difference in do I get back up and try again? And what's your next big challenge? Oh, that's interesting. So I'm new to Switzerland. I've been here for 18 months. I uh, teach at some of the universities and have a job that I'm very happy with. Uh, but I've been thinking recently, actually inspired by you, Lisa, uh, that I might want to start my own business or my own NGO. Um, it might be time. I'm 44. Um, so we'll see. It's certainly not a done deal, but it's something that I've started to think about a lot when I see other women around me, especially in this political climate, decide that they're going to do something way outside their comfort zone, like run for office. Running for office is not something that I personally want to do, but I've seen people in women far younger than I am step up and decide, you know, uh, there's not an NGO that does this. Why don't I make one? 
And I think that's hard to do in a foreign country. There's lots of challenges. Um, I'm still learning how things work here. I'm still trying to learn the language. Um, it's a very a good experience to no longer have sort of the privilege that I carry around me of always, you know, being able to speak my language, everyone always having the background and the network and everything you build up in your own country. But I think something about moving to a new place is that it's, it's also freeing in that you can take more risks. Frankly, because you have to take more risks because the normal paths that would um, you would have in your own country just aren't there. And so you're uh, in a much more uh, a weaker position in a way. And so to take a weaker position, um, to flip it around, you can in some ways have a stronger position. So I think that's maybe the next challenge. I will support you in that challenge in any way that you need language support or navigating the government. You let me know. I'm there. <laughs> so uh, as a last question, I'd like to ask you, is there a question you wish I'd asked you, but I didn't ask? <laughs> um, yes. So um, your questions were awesome. I think something that we could talk about very briefly, I think, is um, moving to a new country and the gender issues. So um, I have to say that in America, this is very embarrassing, but I'll be honest about it. Um, I was never really into being a woman and I was never that strong of a feminist. And I think the reason why was because I didn't have to be, because I came of age where it was the perfect time to be a woman who was white, who had the privilege of um, some good education and um, uh, a family with plenty of resources. Okay. So when I came out of law school, the big firms couldn't hire women fast enough. So I would get affirmative letters saying, you're a woman, you're in a fancy law school, please apply. In fact, I was asked to apply to my law school because I was a woman, right? And had the certain test scores. So at every critical stage when I was a young woman, everyone was trying to use affirmative action to get me. And so what's not to love about that? That was great. Super. <laughs> you know, and, uh, I could be in the public interest uh, sphere, which is uh, female dominated in America, uh, very successful because I was with other women and it was great. And I had a ton of privilege. So awesome. And I come to Switzerland, which has different norms about gender. I'm just learning this now. I'm a little uh, late to the dance. <laughs> Not always the fastest learner, but I'm learning now. And there's very different norms about motherhood and what's expected and how perfect you're expected to be. We talked before about how I'm not perfect. I think I'm a very, very good mother, uh, but I'm not a perfect mother. And it's it's a new challenge, let's say, to live in a culture that expects uh, women to be perfect mothers. And when you fall short, which I often do, uh, you hear about it. And that's been really uh, like personally very hard for me. And uh, it's also been hard at work. You know, as an American, uh, naturally, I can come across as confident and full of ideas, enthusiasm. Um, people will say, you know, take up too much of the air in the room. Uh, I try not to be loud, but can be very outgoing, um, uh, very, very warm, and sometimes, frankly, a bit much. Uh, and, um, you know, this personality and, uh, serves me very well in the United States In the United States, women, my age have been taught, you know, since we entered the workforce, act like a man, you know, get a seat at the table, speak up, you know, all my reviews always in America were like, you know, excellent work needs to show more confidence. And, you know, something I tried to teach my female students in my classes as well, we do oral arguments. And at the beginning of the um, classes, the young men often who were debaters would, I mean, just destroy everyone else. I mean, they were just fantastic at debate. And, you know, sometimes the young women would be intimidated. And we talk about like, do not let him, do not let him destroy you. He is not any smarter than you. He's just projecting confidence. And sure enough, by the end of the class, the young women were destroying everyone. So it's, you know, in America, the idea that you step up to the plate and you quote, act like a man and you show confidence, these are all valued attributes in women. 
Um, here, maybe not so much. And so when I've applied everything that it took me a long time to learn in America here in Switzerland, frankly, I can come across as, as too much, um, as violating norms of equality, of violating norms of knowing my place, of, um, understanding where that I'm, you know, at the end of the day, I'm someone's mother. Um, and I think it's hard to both fight against gender stereotyping and this idea of trying to keep women in their place. It's hard to fight against that when it's not your culture and it's hard to fight against it effectively because obviously getting angry about it uh, is not going to help. And I need to learn. I have to we learn how to be successful as a woman here in Switzerland. So I'm, on the one hand, it's very hard and I wish I didn't have to. On the other hand, it's a great privilege to get to learn for the first time what it's like not to have so much privilege. Like for the first time, I get the tiniest, tiniest, tiniest sense of what it's like not to be celebrated just for showing up. So being an immigrant and being a woman, a double whammy in Switzerland, for the first time I start, I'm not saying that I understand what it's like to be an immigrant or refugee in America. I'm not, I'm not saying that, but the first time I get a little glimpse of like, Oh God, that must, that must be so hard. I am so sorry. Um, so I'm grateful for the compassion. And I'm grateful for the, the chance to learn a new way of, uh, of being. And there's I have a long way to go. I have a lot to learn. So at another point, if you want to give me advice about how to be a successful <laughs> American woman uh, in a society with different gender norms, I would I would love to have that conversation. Yeah. And just to give a little bit of background, I mean, perfect example, even just before we were starting this podcast, your telephone rang, we got interrupted, your daughter was sick at school, who's the first person that they call? Mom. And in Switzerland, also, for those of you who don't know, there's a lunch break of an hour and a half, two hours, and the kids get sent home from school. And who's going to be there to cook the lunch for them? Mom. Mom. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, you know, a, a lot of school days, for example, on Wednesdays, they go for half a day. Who's there for the other half of the day when they're home? Mom. <laughs> exactly. So the, so there are a lot of cultural, not even just talking about cultural viewpoints, but just the, the actual logistics of being a woman here in Switzerland and what's expected of you can be difficult to navigate, especially when you're looking for a career. I remember early on when I moved here and I was looking for full time work. Um, I was taught the word Rabenmutter which is a raven mother, which basically means you're pushing your children out of the nest. Because if you're not home and taking care of them, you've just pushed them aside and let them fly in their own or fall on their own. And it's not a nice term that we use for women who have kids and work. And the culture here is very focused on if you're a career woman, it's actually quite acceptable, I think more so than in America, that you don't have kids and you're devoted to your career. And that's great. And if you have kids, it's anticipated you might work part time, but you shouldn't be putting in 40 hours, 50 hours, 60 hours, 90 hours, like a full time career might ask. These are small things. It, it doesn't matter. I can learn to be them. It's, it's certainly women have a very, uh, have great status in Switzerland. It's only that coming to a new environment from a position of privilege does make you aware of all the privileges you have. And when they're taken away, you know, no one likes to have their status taken away, you know? Yeah. And so it, I'm, I'm trying to see this as an opportunity to make me uh, more empathetic and more grateful for all the amazing uh, privileges that I do have. Excellent. Alexandra, thank you so much for joining us here today. It was such a pleasure chatting with you. It was so much fun. Thank you so much, Lisa. Take care. 